0: Hello, and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2018 Spring Retreat. I'm Chris Dauer, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Adam White, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Deconstructing the Administrative State, the Regulatory Reform Agenda in Year Two, and it was recorded on April 23rd, 2018. Well, thank you very much. You know, usually when I talk about the administrative state or administrative law in the morning, the first thing I need to do is warn people to refill their coffee cups. Uh, that's not the case when you follow John Cochran on stage. I don't need to worry about folks being awake. When I'm when I'm introduced, as Tom mentioned, I run a program at the Antonin Scalia Law School called the Center for the Study of the Administrative State. And whenever I'm, you know, giving a talk somewhere. There's a 50-50 chance I'm going to be introduced as running the center for the administrative state. And I always have to say, no, 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 that's every other law school in Washington. I run the one that studies the administrative state. Uh, And there's a lot to study these days. Uh, And just, we're only a year into the Trump administration, and I've already had the honor and pleasure of speaking with some of you uh, twice before about what's happened so far and what might come next, uh, which I think illustrates how fast things can change, uh, how fast... Uh, The administration tried to move on some things, and we're now at a natural point a year in to pause and look at what's happened so far uh, and what might come next. So my title of my talk is Deconstructing the Administrative State. The word deconstructing is in quote marks. What is it a reference to, or who is it a reference to? Does anybody know what it's a reference to? It's reference to this man, the president's uh, former political advisor, Steve Bannon. About a month into the Trump administration, he was giving an address at CPAC, the Conservative Political Political Action Committee, and he was asked, what are the priorities of the new administration? He listed a few. His third one, if I can find the, is this the button? There it is. The third one, he said, our third line of work is deconstruction of the administrative state. Now, with Mr. Bannon, characteristically, there was a little bit of showmanship an overstatement there, but there was a very genuine point that he was trying to make, which was this: the Trump administration came to office with a very concerted plan, a very thought, uh, a, a very detailed plan, of responding to the growth of the administrative state that we had witnessed in the eight years that preceded it and beyond, and also a plan for uh, for for removing what had been built by the previous administration and and hopefully building something in its place. And so Mr. Bannon referred to it as deconstructing the administrative state. Now those of you who are familiar with Washington politics know that uh, Mr. Bannon was deconstructed faster than he could deconstruct it. But the policy agenda remains in place. The administration has tried a number of things. Uh, and So let me walk through what's happened so far and, uh, and walk through what's, what's coming next. I mean we're a year after this statement. So I, try to, I tend to think about it in these terms. When I, think about the when I think about administrative law, of course, who would I think of? Winston Churchill. I think this is a good description of where we are. Where are we a year into the administration? Well, it's not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end. But it is perhaps the end of the beginning. A useful time to take stock at what has happened so far uh, and what is to come. It's far too early to declare victory which is a tendency in any administration to declare victory, declare a mission accomplished as quickly as possible. It's too soon to do that. Uh, it's also too soon to throw up one's hands and declare defeat. Uh, but I think it is a good milepost at which to take a, take a step back and think about what has happened so far. Now, a lot's happened so far. Uh, those of you who came out to the Board of Overseers meeting in Washington, DC in early 2017, Uh, Some of you I I chatted with about the flurry of executive orders that were coming out of the Trump White House in its opening days. Uh, This was something that had been planned well in advance, even before President Trump was the nominee. There were ad hoc efforts uh, in in legal communities, especially in Washington, D.C., to think through what the previous administration had done through executive orders and through the rulemaking process and think through the ways in which executive orders could kickstart a deregulatory program In previous administrations, even deregulatory-minded administrations, there's a tendency to appoint the cabinet officers and then allow them to start their own processes. This administration did it very differently. Alexander Hamilton said in Federalist 70 that energy in the executive is a leading character of good government, not just in foreign policy, but in domestic governance at home. And in this one respect, I think the incoming uh, administration Uh, showed great presidential energy in that respect uh, by issuing executive orders telling the agencies, sometimes before they even had Senate-confirmed leadership, to start a process of deregulation or regulatory reform. They did this in two ways. You can think about it as horizontal or vertical. Horizontally, there were executive orders that looked across all of the agencies and said, do it this way now. For every new regulation you want to promulgate, you need to start unpromulgating two existing regulations. Or we're going to put a regulatory budget on the agency. You can't increase the cumulative costs that you're imposing upon society. If you want to impose new regulatory costs, you've got to find cuts elsewhere. So those were horizontal, as I like to say, executive orders that cut across all agencies. In other cases, though, the administration, the White House, took a vertical approach. They'd pick one agency, or they'd pick one topic, say, labor regulation, financial regulation, energy regulation. And they'd say to all of the agencies that had a, a hand in that, in that subject to start considering other principles to follow. Of course, executive orders can't contradict statutes that Congress has passed. It can't go beyond the statutes. But Statutes often, perhaps too often, leave agencies with a lot of discretion. And so some executive orders told agencies like the financial regulators to keep in mind these principles in addition to the statutes, when you were taking on new regulatory actions or deregulatory actions. So they did that early on in the first year. By the end of the first year, you could already see a lot of movement. This is statistics from um, an office in the, uh, in the White House Office of Management and Budget. Everything needs an, an, an acronym. This one is OIRA, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. It's basically the regulatory oversight body in the White House. And last December, they issued their semi-annual report, and they announced that 1,579 regulatory actions had been withdrawn or delayed in the first year of the administration. What they mean by that is, of everything they inherited in the agencies, they either stopped or delayed almost 1,600 actions. And it broke down like this. There were 635 regulations that had been proposed in the earlier administration uh, in, in its last unified agenda. 635 of them were withdrawn completely from the administration's unified agenda of regulatory actions. Another 244 regulations were taken from from active status to inactive. means they could uh, be resurrected like a zombie in a horror film. But for now, it is uh, resting peacefully where it can't hurt anybody. Then finally, 700 regulations were moved to what they call the long-term list. No longer an immediate priority from the agency. The agencies have decided to focus on other things first and put this off later. So immediately the administration sees, sees great progress. Now I have to say, this is an example where there was a slight risk that the administration was spiking the football on the 10yard line. And I don't mean the 10-yard line right before the end zone. I mean the 10-yard line at the other end of the field, right? This is the beginning of a process, and of course we need to, it's, it's, it's good, I think, to welcome a good start, but it's important to keep in mind it is a very strong start, not a very strong finish. What else? In Congress, Congress took action using what's called the Congressional Review Act. It's a statute that's about 20 years old, long dormant, though. It does, it does something in a very limited way. The Congressional Review Act gives Congress the opportunity to fast-track a vote to nullify a recent agency regulation. If the agency promulgates a regulation. It reports it to Congress, as it's required to do. Congress has uh, 60 legislative days to vote down that regulation. And if they vote it down and the president signs it, that means the regulation is not just nullified, but it can never even be resurrected again by the agency without future legislation by Congress. It's an extremely strong tool. But as I breeze through that, so the, the process here, you might have noticed something important. It requires a presidential signature. Right? So, and these are regulations coming out of the president's administration. So it will virtually never be used, right? If only very rarely will a president sign a CRA resolution that vetoes one of his agency, one of his own agency's uh, regulations. Which means this only really comes up once every four to eight years, right? It comes up in presidential transitions when you suddenly have a Congress and a new president looking back at the very last actions of the last president. You get this very small window of sixty legislative days. Uh, uh, Basically, the last things the last administration promulgated, Congress uh, and the the new president can veto. Uh, From its enactment in, I think, 1996 uh, to 2016, this had been used once and only once. It had been used once by President George W. Bush on a labor or health uh, occupational safety regulation. President Trump signed 15 CRA resolutions in 2015. Here's the list. This comes from my friends at the George Washington University Regulatory Studies Center, where they have cataloged all of the successful and unsuccessful CRA regulations. I'll give you all a minute to read this. Just kidding. Um, you can see it doesn't always work. There was one failed resolution out of the Bureau of Land Management where uh, Congress, the, the House voted to vote down the regulation, but the Senate did not. Other than that, though, you see 15 examples that began in the House and made it all the way through to the President's signature. Most of them are pretty technical. I mean, there's a few. I'll point to the stream protection rule. That's from the Department of Interior. It had to do with, with mining uh, near streams, uh, often on mountains. You had some FCC regulations on uh, on on customer privacy. Uh, you have, um, well, I'll get to this one in a second. Um, it, these are all, like I said, the, administ- the new administration couldn't touch most of what the last administration could do- did, but they could reach the very last things that came out of the last administration, which meant in mid 2016, you saw a flurry of activity from the Obama administration as they tried to get their last major regulations out the door before uh, the window opened for the next president to veto. Now, I said generally, a president will not veto, will, will not sign a veto of his own agency's regulations, but there's one example. Uh, it's this one here, the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. This is the, uh, the super-duper independent agency that Dodd-Frank created to regulate financial services. Uh, President Trump actually signed a resolution vetoing uh, his own, technically his own agency's regulation. This is a process that started in July. They're now working on vetoing a CFPB guidance document, which I'll get back to in a minute. This one started in, in April in the Senate with Senator Toomey. But here, as I said, you see Congress at least uh, voting to strike down 16 regulations in a way that prevents the agencies from ever returning to these regulations without new approval from Congress. Now, since these are all hyper-technical rules, there's plenty of room to agree or disagree with any of these one given rules. I don't want to give the sense that these are all uh, bad regulations or not. They might not be. Um, but it's interesting to see Congress actually engage the issue of regulatory reform. So often at this stage in our government, we are used to seeing Congress sort of being reactive rather than proactive. Congress allows the agencies to regulate, right? And then it's instead, instead of being the first branch that legislates, Congress sits back. And kind of complains about what the agencies did. Instead of being the first branch, Congress so often is ombudsman for the administrative state. It sort of sits back and holds hearings criticizing what agencies have done. Well, here at least Congress was legislating, right? Passing these resolutions, the president's signature, to actually change the laws governing the agencies. So I think that is a productive step. It could be more productive. The CRA applies not just to regulations, but to what are called guidance documents, other things that the agencies produce. Under the law, the agencies are required to report every one of their regulations or guidance documents to Congress to start the clock for Congress to to consider voting against it. Well, for two decades, agencies uh, virtually never reported guidance documents. and They didn't even report, oftentimes didn't even report actual regulations, and it's not enough to just publish it in the Federal Register. Uh, They actually are required to give a report to Congress. Well, what Senator Toomey and others recognized was, under the Congressional Review Act, if an agency hasn't yet handed over its report on a rule to Congress, well, it's never too late to say we're sorry. And the agency, if they belatedly turn in a regulation, even one that was promulgated 5, 10, 15 years ago, that starts the clock for Congress to perhaps uh, vote it down. And so Senator Toomey and others are now considering they're now asking the agencies to submit old guidance documents that were never reported. This could give Congress a chance to vote down long-standing regulations and guidance documents that have been on the books for years but were never reported to Congress as required. As you might expect, this has outraged a lot of people, but it is, I think, a very straightforward reading of the law. And that is why we now say here on the previous slide, we see a CFPB rule on uh, auto lending. This is an old guidance document. It was never given over to Congress, and now Senator Toomey and others are taking steps towards vetoing it. So it's a it's an interesting approach. It could be very consequential. I think it'll be very controversial, uh, but it is also very well grounded in the governing statute. There's other things Congress could do. Uh, this is H.R. 26. It's better known as the RAINS Act. One of the problems Uh, with modern administration is that Congress has vested effectively open-ended power to agencies. Told the agencies, go do good things, let us know how it works out. Uh, The RAINS Act was a proposal that's been floating around for a few years, which would take a lot of that power back from the agencies. It would require the agencies, uh, when they want to impose the costliest of rules, to instead report it to Congress and allow Congress to vote up or down on it. It's kind of the flip side of the Congressional Review Act instead of the agency making a new rule and Congress being on a clock to veto it, this would prevent the agency from finalizing the rule at all without an affirmative vote of Congress. It would turn the costliest regulations into just proposals for new legislation. I think a very welcome recalibration, rebalancing of power between the agencies and Congress. Uh, This passed the House overwhelmingly. What's the vote? The vote was 237 in favor, 187 against. uh, Passed in early 2017. Sounds like a great idea, except it's probably not going to happen. It is completely stalled out in the Senate, where a filibuster is blocking it from occurring. Uh, hopefully a long-term priority, but to be candid, probably not one that's going to be legislated anytime soon. But that's not the only option. There's another one. This is H.R. 5. It's called the Regulatory Accountability Act. Now, in addition to statutes like the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, other substantive statutes, Agencies are governed by the Administrative Procedure Act, the basic rules for the road of how they undergo the rulemaking process. It's from 1946, and it is a very good reflection of the way agencies worked and what they did in 1946. It is a very poor reflection of the administrative state we have today. The rules on the books, which I teach at George Mason University, bear only a passing resemblance, to the way that modern agencies actually go about making law and policy. It's long overdue for an update, and so I think this is a welcome update. The Regulatory Accountability Act would require agencies to go through multiple rounds of notice and comment before making a new rule. It would require them as a matter of statute to do cost-benefit analysis that the courts could review, uh, and it puts in other sort of procedural uh, mechanisms that are more responsive to the way agencies do business today. This also passed the House overwhelmingly, by a vote of 238 to 183. A version of it is actually introduced in the Senate on a bipartisan basis. Senator Rob Portman uh, and Senator Orrin Hatch from the Republicans, uh, Senator Heidi Heitkamp and uh, and Senator Manchin from West Virginia on the Democratic side. But once again, because of the filibuster, it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. There just is not yet enough votes for it. It's a welcome reform that unfortunately is not going to happen uh, in the near term, due to the filibuster. Okay. Um, oh, I should add. Actually, there's one way in which this one could get through: the Regulatory Accountability Act. In the ongoing negotiations over NAFTA, there is debate over whether to include in the in NAFTA 2.0 a a a, a chapter, if they call it, um, in which each of the three member nations would commit to a more stable, transparent. Uh, and, and, and accountable regulatory process. Each of them would, would would commit to that. If that actually winds up in NAFTA 2.0, then under the Trade Promotion Authority, the Senate could fast track this through on a on a, a strict majority vote. The Regulatory Accountability Act could sidestep the filibuster that way. Uh, there's great interest in this. Uh, folks in the Canadian Embassy in Washington tell me that Canada really likes the idea. Uh, Mexico likes the idea. Parts of the Trump administration like the idea. The sticking point seems to be the U.S. trade rep's office, which since this is not a traditional sort of matter of of trade dealing, there's a little hesitancy there. We'll see if it works out. But if it isn't included in NAFTA, you're probably not going to see it legislated anytime soon. In lieu of actual legislation then... Uh, What's the alternative? The alternative, I think, is agencies leading by example. Agencies cleaning up their own houses and hopefully serving as an example for their sister agencies and then hopefully in the long run serving as an example for things that Congress could legislate for all of the agencies. Here's a good example. I mentioned earlier guidance documents. These are things that don't go through the notice and comment rulemaking process. They became very controversial in the last few years as agencies became more and more aggressive in using guidance documents. the Justice Department in late 2017 announced that they would, as an agency, they would themselves avoid the use of, uh, of guidance documents whenever possible, that they would, in making their own regulations, go maximize use of notice and comment rulemaking and try to minimize the use of guidance documents. They're not the only one. The Department of Education under Betsy DeVos made a similar example, and you may recall the Education Department's use of guidance documents uh, at universities was particularly controversial. And so her engagement of that issue is also very interesting. I just couldn't find quite as nice a PDF to stick on a slide, otherwise I would have used that one. But you see agencies like the Justice Department, the Education Department, and others trying to lead by example. I'm very fortunate to have friends at the Justice Department who are interested in regulatory reform. And so when I talk to them about these things, and they say, what can we do without legislation? I always say, lead by example, lead by example. And I think they've taken that to heart, and I hope they continue it. Now, not all agencies are quite as accountable, right? Justice Department, Education Department, Treasury, they all answer directly to the president. Independent agencies don't. The SEC, the CFTC, the Federal Communications Commission, they all have a a pretty substantial margin of insulation from direct presidential oversight. The executive agencies, like Treasury and so on, they have to report their regulations to the White House. When President Reagan... (coughs) Excuse me. When President Reagan... Um, brought that process into existence in 1981, they excluded the independent agencies. Not because they didn't think they had constitutional authority to rope those agencies in. They did, and the Justice Department had written a memo to that effect. But rather they thought that the independent agencies in 1981 uh, were not... The fight wouldn't have been worth the political cost. right? That, that, and what they did in 1981 in bringing in all the other agencies was already enough of an endeavor that they didn't think the added step of bringing in the independent agencies was worth that political fight. It might have made sense in 1981, 30 years later, 40 years later, uh, when we see everything that the, the SEC, the Fed, the CFPB, all those financial regulators and the telecom regulators, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, all of these agencies, all of the roles that they have in modern governance. It's now probably time to rope those in, and quite frankly, folks are waiting to see if the White House will issue an executive order um, folding in those agencies. We're not there yet, but there was one interesting development. You may have read about it in The Wall Street Journal in recent months it had to do with the IRS, not legally an independent agency, but functionally an agency that enjoys a, a fair amount of political insulation from the president. From the mid-19 you don't need to read that, don't worry from the mid-1980s uh, onward, the IRS has not had to submit its regulations for White House review. Uh, following months of bipartisan calls for reform, uh, a few weeks ago, the, uh, the Treasury Department and the White House Office of Management budget, budget executed this memorandum of agreement, which for the first time will require the IRS to submit a lot of its regulations for White House oversight. I think this is a very hopeful sign. It shows that the White House is at least beginning the process of roping in independent or seemingly independent agencies into their framework. And I'm hopeful that it is a preview of coming attractions and that within the next year, we'll see a formal executive order requiring the other independent agencies to be more accountable to the people through the president. Okay. I've talked about two branches before. Let's talk about another one. This is Neil Gorsuch, the latest uh, addition to the U.S. Supreme Court, President Trump's first appointment. Gorsuch rose rose to the attention of the Trump administration and the folks advising the Trump administration uh, for a few reasons, but most of all because of his views of the administrative state. He is one of a new generation of judges that has been extremely critical of the amount of deference that courts give to agencies, of the breadth of powers that Congress gives to agencies. And he is called, as a lower court judge, he called upon the Supreme Court to rethink these things. Uh, his addition to the court was seen as a signal that, uh, that, that there would be greater emphasis in this administration and hopefully on the Supreme Court to recalibrate the balance between the courts and agencies and Congress and the agencies. We saw an example of that last week on Tuesday in a case called Sessions versus DeMaya. It's an immigration case a case in which uh, somebody who was eligible for quick uh, deportation, quick removal uh, due to his commitment of of violent crimes in California, he actually challenged his deportation, saying that the statute at issue in the term of crimes of violence was so vague as effectively to be void as a matter of constitutional law. Um, This is a complicated issue, a technical legal issue, and we saw conservatives on both sides of it. We saw Gorsuch on one side of the case, Justice Thomas on the other side of the case. But it was an interesting opinion. You'll Just bear with me as I read it, because this is the opening lines from Justice Gorsuch's opinion. And I think it illustrates where he's headed on a lot of issues. He says, vague laws invite arbitrary power. Before the Revolution, the crime of treason in English law was so capaciously construed that the mere expression of disfavored opinions could invite transportation or death. The founders cited the Crown's abuse of pretended crimes like this. Is one of the reasons for revolution, and he cites the Declaration of Independence. He says, today's vague laws may not be as invidious, but they can invite the exercise of arbitrary power all the same by leaving the people in the dark about what the law demands and allowing prosecutors and courts to make it up. So Justice Gorsuch, to the surprise of many, sided with the four liberals on the court in declaring this one provision of the Immigration Act unconstitutionally void. He wound up in a pretty... Pretty uh, thorough dispute with Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas in dueling opinions, and he may and they may well have had the better of the argument on this statute, but most attention that was paid to this case was paid to the fact that Gorsuch had split with the Trump administration. I think that's too simplistic. I think the more important thing is that Justice Gorsuch is laying down a marker that's very clearly aimed at cases that are coming up this fall and beyond, where the court's going to decide whether agency statutes are uncon- certain agency statutes are unconstitutionally broad. And that could be a real change in administrative law. It's something that Justice Thomas is calling for and the other conservatives, especially Chief Justice Roberts, actually, may be interested in pursuing. So that was a very interesting development on Tuesday. Um, Goreshach is just one appointment. The administration is appointing many, many other judges. And as the New York Times reported a few weeks ago, one of the real litmus tests for this administration is they want judges who are rethinking the modern administrative state and the balance of powers between the agencies, Congress, and the courts. Um, So far as of mid-April, the Trump administration has appointed 14 judges to the federal circuit courts, the courts of appeals, and 17 judges to the federal district courts. But there's many more to come, 13 more circuit judges are nominated, 58 more are nominated to the federal district courts. And in terms of vacancies, there's 19 vacancies in the circuits, but there could be many more if long-standing judges who have been on the court for years, um, that they're older than 65 and they've served more than 15 years on their circuit, they can take senior status, remain on the court, but open up a new seat for President Trump to fill. So it's possible, if the Republicans keep the Senate, that President Trump and the Senate will be able to appoint uh, dozens of conservative judges uh, who are interested in rethinking a modern administrative state. We'll see, and it depends on the Senate staying in Republican hands, but if so, uh, the Trump administration has made this a priority, and Senator Mitch McConnell has made it a priority. He said even more than executive branch appointments, judicial appointments are his top priority. Uh, and, and he too uh, sees that there's a need for recalibration of modern administrative and constitutional law regarding the agencies. So that's what could come in the courts. Unfortunately for now, we have a very different judiciary. Uh, And we're already seeing the administration run into some roadblocks or some speed bumps in some of their early actions. Uh, Here's a headline from Politico from just a few days ago where the Court of Appeals pushed back against uh, the Trump administration's efforts to uh, rein in the so-called sanctuary cities. That's one example. Here's another one down at the bottom from last summer where the D.C. Circuit struck down the EPA's first efforts to delay rules regarding uh, methane, methane emissions. From oil and gas wells. They tried to suspend the laws or the new regulations for a while, and the court said, no, you haven't considered all the things you need to consider. You've done it too quickly. Go back and try it again. And I think that's going to be, I fear that's going to be a recurring theme in the next year, that 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 courts are going to be much less deferential to this administration than to previous administrations for a few reasons. Um, One uh, could just be partisan ideology. But second, and I think we need to take this seriously, is that judicial deference tends to be premised upon not just the agency's accountability to the president and the people, but also the court's expectation that the, court, that the agencies are exercising technical expertise in a serious way. And one of the things I do fear, we often say that the, 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 the administration's rhetoric should, is not the same as its policy. That's by and large true. But I worry that the administration's rhetoric may end up blending over a bit into the regulatory sphere when courts are reviewing these agency actions. And if the courts don't think that the agencies are being serious and ex- exercising expertise in good faith, we may wind up seeing a series of losses in the courts. The worst case scenario would be something like this, as you may have heard. Um, the Ninth Circuit has been pretty hostile towards the Trump administration's executive orders on, uh, on entry from foreign countries. Over and over again, the courts have been very hostile. The Supreme Court even told the Ninth Circuit to calm down a little bit in an order last year. But we still see over and over again the agencies the courts reflexively rejecting in very hostile terms what the administration's doing, and that would be, I think, the worst case scenario if this extended from the immigration debates into all the other policy debates, uh, energy and environmental policy, labor policy and so on. that's the worst case scenario, and it's not hard to imagine, to be quite honest. OK, so what should we be thinking about? I began by saying that Steve Bannon wanted to deconstruct. The administrative state. I would propose something slightly different. I would say instead of thinking in terms of just deconstruction, we need to think in terms of reconstruction or reform. People ask me, what do I think is happening with the administration right now in regulatory reform? I say, well they had a plan for the invasion. The question is, do they have a plan for the occupation? They came to power knowing what they wanted to take down, but now the question for the next three years at least, or the next seven years is, what are they going to build in its place? I think this is key. Nature abhors a vacuum, and if the administration does not build up new institutions for the administration of the laws, um, I don't mean building new agencies from scratch, but I mean new practices new um, rules of the road, new best practices. If they don't do that, the next administration will be able to very easily wipe away what this administration has done and return to the old way of business. And so my advice over and over again when I talk to folks in the agencies is think seriously about building and reforming institutions. Right? Promote transparency, Right? promote accountability, and do it very loudly. Let the people know what you're doing. Lay down markers. Lay down practices that will have their own inertia uh, that the next administration can't so easily uh, sweep sweep aside. Now It's easier said than done, and it requires the investment of a lot of political capital in the success of those ventures. A good example, the White House office I was telling you about, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, it is perhaps the single most successful deregulatory institution that's been created in the federal government in the last 50 years. It began with an executive order from President Reagan, but not quite. Reagan's executive order built on 10 years of sort of organic growth in the agencies, agencies trying to do more cost-benefit analysis, agencies being more aligned with one another and with the president. Reagan took that and codified it in an executive order, but that was also just a beginning. In the years to come, the Reagan administration... And the first Bush administration invested a lot of effort in seeing that this new process would succeed and be seen as successful. So that when President uh, Clinton came to office in 1993 and everybody expected him to get rid of it all, he kept it. He kept it. He reformed it a bit, but he kept it. And then President Bush kept it. And President Obama kept it. And it was because of the investments of political capital in the Reagan and Bush administrations that made OIRA a successful institution. When I joked earlier about the risk that the administration will spike the football on the 10-yard line, this is what I'm getting at. If they declare victory too quickly and think that executive orders are self-executing and that executive orders uh, are the end of a process rather than the beginning of a process, the risk is that these things will never really take root, and it's going to take real effort by the administration. I'm still hopeful. I'm still optimistic, but I think everybody needs to remind them from time to time that this is, this is a matter of laying foundations for long-term reform. Again, ideally, Congress would play a greater role. Ideally, the courts would play a greater role. But until then, there's a lot that the administration can do. It's begun a lot of good things. And hopefully, uh, if I speak to you again in a couple of years, we'll be discussing more successes. Uh, but in the meantime, thank you very much, and I'm happy to answer your questions. <laughs> For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dauer for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.